0: Okay, um, you hear me, right? Yes. Okay, you. great. So sorry about that. We had we had some technical difficulties. Please bear with us. Uh, I want to welcome once again Professor Mark Shapiro to Challenge Jewish History. Uh, Dr. Shapiro is a professor of Judaic Studies at University of Scranton. He's also a noted author and lecturer. Professor Shabwarov, to you. How are you? Thank
1: you, Shabwarov. Thank you thank for having you. me.
0: So, uh, we'll just was a little bit about. Uh, let's start off with your recent book, uh, or safer, I should say, called Man Malki Rabbanon. It's a collection of responsa that you uh, exchanged with uh, many different rabbis over thirty years. And as you put it, it's everything from Satmar to religious Zionists. Tell us a little bit more about it, and what do you think are some of the more like out there responses that you received?
1: Okay, well, uh, since my youth, I've been very interested in uh, correspondence with uh, big rabbis, and uh, I mean, I obviously don't come from the world of the big rabbis, but uh, I started sending letters, and uh, as you mentioned, over all these years I received, uh, many of them appeared in uh, the spharm of the authors, and then I decided to put them together, so you have everyone from Ravaviner and the Chief Rabbis of Israel, to Satmar figures, Rav Masha Klein, and many others. Uh, I'm actually on Torah in motion. Uh, you can see on YouTube, I've given three classes, and it's going to be like a 50-part series in which we're going through uh, the book. And uh, I have a lot of people online listening to it. Apparently, they find it interesting, I think perhaps, because the questions are not run-of-the-mill questions. So... Uh, I, I'm, I'm talking right now in the class about uh, when I was uh, the Orthodox advisor at Brandeis University, there was an issue about giving an aliyah to a uh, reform rabbi, and that was splitting the campus. So uh, you have that uh, question there. There's questions about uh, you know, how to relate uh, to the Satmarebi, uh, questions about uh, issues dealing with women, such as women uh, saying kiddish in a group of uh, Orthodox and non Orthodox, and uh, just the, the range of issues on halacha, and also Ashkenazic matters, you know, the state of Israel, Sfardic and uh, Ashkenazi Jews when they're together, uh, getting letters from, from, from Rabbi Yosef, or Ishaq Yosef, can an Ashkenazi uh, um, become a far as it were, and take on all those practices. So uh, it's really a range of unusual questions, not run of the mill, but. Uh, interested
0: they can pur- certainly purchase it. I'll, I'll put a link to the Torah in Motion classes. I, I have to point out that I, I actually listened to this will be a third class I think that you've done already on, on the Safer. So it's actually highly recommended along with all the other lectures that you give on on Torah in Motion. So thank you for that. Um, any of your um, previous book, um, was is still all the rage, um, and I understand you're preparing uh, maybe another another uh, volume, another on Orthodox Jews and censorship. Or... You no, know,
1: no, not another volume. I could do another volume, and uh, but uh, I, my next book is going to be on this book. Uh, it's just about done. Uh, uh, something's relevant because we're going to be talking about where ideas and ideas that were censored or uh, I guess, uh, not released is maybe the better term. But, uh, no, I don't see myself doing another volume. I've updated in many posts on the blog block further examples of censorship. I mean, it's an never ending uh, thing.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I, you, know, you know, when you first published it, I, I absolutely enjoyed it, and I thought it was an extremely important book. Um, and I don't know if you touched this very much, but I'm interested in Apologia from early period. I'm, t- I'm talking about um, antiquity. Uh, so I came across something. Just you know, Josephus and Philo sometimes sort of, I would say, obfuscate the truth in order to make Jews look better. Especially Josephus does that in one case. In contra apione, he, he talks about the laws of usury, of uh, ribbit and lending on interest, and he says basically uh, he omits the fact that uh, usury is okay for Gentiles but but not for Jews in order yeah. to not make us look bad. You know what I mean? Like these things are old. Uh,
1: well, I mean, whole, his whole uh, history, of course, is also designed to make the Jews uh, look good. So yeah. uh, that would be uh, in line with that as well.
0: So um, um, one of my readers, Echiel Goldrash, asks, uh, if you ever consider the political ramifications of the Orthodox world when you explore and publicize your scholarly findings? Uh, what would be the uh, political ramifications? It these political ramifications Jew, non-Jew, or uh, internal Jewish? Both. Uh, Let's, let's do both, uh, if not, possible. Not sure.
1: Well, uh, I mean, I'm not sure uh, what uh, I've written about has any uh, relevance to the larger uh, question of uh, Jew, non-Jew. Um, really, I don't even consider in terms of uh, Jews uh, themselves. I'm just trying to write academic works, uh, which I find interesting. But uh, I'm not sure why uh, revealing the truth would... Uh, a negative uh, impact. I would think uh, one thing we've learned in recent years is that uh, these sorts of things actually have a positive impact. You can't keep uh, things under wraps for too long, and eventually they get out, things are bad. Unless we're dealing with extreme cases. So, for instance, I uh, I would not be the one, for instance, to write an article, an expose, on, let's say, say, of, uh, Victor Miller. And his views of race relations, I don't think that necessarily would be positive. But, uh, you know, if someone uh, were to write it, it's not like this information is hidden, it's out there. And, you uh, know, I don't think you can really tell people not to write about things. Uh, at the end of the day, um, much of our, the progress we've made in certain areas is precisely because... Stuff has come out we never would have been able to tackle. Just to give one example of the sexual abuse uh, right. problem in right. yeshivas, right. had we allowed it to remain under wraps, the fact that they exposed it is what uh, helped uh, us finally deal with it. So I know it's painful and uh, often. But uh, that's really, that sort of thing I just mentioned is really more for reporters. I'm writing in an academic mode. Uh, I, when my book, The Limits of Orthodox Theology, came out, uh, I got a letter from someone involved in the Yisrael Yeshiva telling me that, actually before the book came out, the article, that I never should have written it because the Yeshiva students at Ner Yisrael Many of them were passing around the article and said that this is sort of information that should be kept among the elites. On the raps, yeah. Not what the masses know about it. Now, granted, we're talking mm-hmm. about Shiva students you know not right. the masses. So I said to him, I'm writing and I can't help it if your uh, students are reading it. So I don't really, it's one thing not to get up in front of, let's say, a, a adult when you're asked to give, let's say, a sermon. Right. And it's a whole group of people there at different levels who start talking about certain ideas that maybe they, ideas Riff Cook would say they couldn't, you know, they wouldn't. Riff Cook says that even if something's true, you shouldn't speak about it for people who won't know how to deal with it. But when you're writing an academic uh, work, it's already a self selected group of people who are going to read it. So, uh, uh, my attitude is more of you write the truth and, uh, then you let the others, uh, you, deal with it, what to make of it. Uh, having said that, however, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that everything you discover needs to be publicized. Right. I mean, if I write a biography, for instance, you're taking information and including it, uh, what you think will tell the story. So if I were to find out, for example, something terrible about someone, I uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily publish it, And uh, because uh, I think you have to look at what's the point. Right. If, let's say you're dealing with a great gravelly. Who were trained to respect, it, but you find out something that he did was terrible and evil and all that, well, then maybe he's not someone we should respect. On <laughs> the other hand, uh, if you if it's a youthful thing he did uh, uh, simply to reveal it in order to destroy the man, that's I think that's not only improper, I think it would be against Jewish law as well. So I think in all these cases, you need to... Uh, tread carefully, but I'm not even in that. I just publish what appears in books, sorry, and things like that. If people find it shocking sometimes. That's not my issue. It's the <laughs> fact that uh, they don't know the history, perhaps. like In my last the book, you mentioned about uh, changing the immutable. Some people right. were absolutely shocked that there was a time that religious Jews were drinking uh, what was today you called non-kosher, non-Jewish wine. Right. And uh, someone even said you shouldn't write about this. Doesn't uh, I mean? So I, I completely reject that uh,
0: notion. Yeah, it's interesting because um, putting on my shivish cap or a black hat for a second, this this kind of you know what you're saying is encapsulated in like we find this already in the classical literature. You have on the one hand, uh, you know, shash you know, things that you shouldn't talk about, and on the other hand, you have Misha writes a Right? I'm going to say it. Whoever wants to, you know, use it, misuse it for, for nefarious purposes, then let them go ahead. It's on them. All right?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have, uh, they discuss this in the book as well. We have uh, various uh But, uh, I'm getting, well, here I'm talking, you know, when you're writing an academic work, uh, I don't think you can hold academic works the same way you hold, let's say, when a rabbi gives a you know, writes a tshuva or something like that. The whole point of the academic work is to study what people are doing. I've never, ever uh, put myself out there as an authority of Jewish law or anything and saying that this is what you should do or Jewish I'm simply uh, studying what the Great Ones have written about. And uh, it's a sort of censorship. The other way not to talk about people because of what they said, because you might say, well, today we don't hold like them. Who is weak? Right, deciding who holds and who doesn't hold.
0: Right. Right. And you know what? Ultimately, people follow their rabbi, their community, their philosophy, and uh, they do what they do. Um,
1: I mean, that, that approach uh, is what uh, has pushed through a cookout, has pushed for a exactly. out of certain circles. So that's, uh, I think, on the contrary, we need to open up the windows rather than
0: close them, uh, in my opinion. Um, let's not talk a minute about. I know you like this, is one of your um, favorite topics, I think. Um, the, the radical changes that we've seen since the Holocaust, and specifically in the German and Hungarian Orthodox communities, non Hasidic communities. I was talking to a woman recently who grew up in Barpark, before Barpark looked like it looked today. And you had these and Hungarian Rabbanim in Williamsburg, too, Jonathan Steif and others who were not Hasidic, and they came and they had a strong. They were uh, world-class halakhists, and they had a Masori tradition, Minhagim, they were Ashkenaz. And all that has sort of kind of disappeared. I mean, you look at Rabbi Steif headed at the Vienna Kehla, right, which came out of Vienna. It was an Ashkenaz Kehla, as you can imagine, it's Vienna. And today, it's a Hasidus, right? You look at it, it looks like Satmar. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's happened also uh, in all these Nitra, so in all of them, that, uh,
1: you mentioned um, you know, the Hungarian Orthodox you had uh, uh, there was a uh, community it's called Kerovah and, and, so, and uh, that, that became right. uh, a Hasidus there's nothing to yes. do with Hasidus, this is a descendant of the chas himself, and all exactly. of a sudden he becomes an adbar, and it's treated like an adbar. The only adbar Though they
0: still dab in in on Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz, they still dab on Nosek Ashkenaz, that's one of the things they retain. They do minag, a yeah, lot but of minhag. The yeah, there's it's sign of the they retain, but right.
1: uh, of the Uh the of Hasidus, uh, uh, Popla. Popla was not a Hasidus in um, in Hungary. No, it wasn't. It was
0: the- Neither was Samar. Neither was oh. <laughs> Samar.
1: He well, was, Satmar came, I mean, already in Europe. He had, he was in Satmar. And, well, uh, it was
0: only he, Rabbi Joel Tidalam in Satmar.
1: Uh, by the way, there was... Uh, people don't realize this. There was two key heroes in Satmar. Satmar was established in folk. Yeah. You
0: know,
1: also. Right. And then you had the Orthodox. So he created a Hasidic there. It's a sign you know, for some reason this Hungarian's uh, chassem orthodoxy was not able to hold on and it lost out to the Hasidic world. And in general, the yeshiva world as a whole has, yeah. uh, was put under pressure by the Hasidic world. Uh, if you go into Lakewood today, for instance, it seems that pretty much everyone uh, does an So I was oh, yeah. informed by one of my friends there. And uh, this is this sort of unimaginable, uh, you know, fifty even 50 years ago that the litfisher people would be doing uh, this sort of thing. So, uh, and on the one hand, it's a sign that the Hasidic world is more accepting, has become more accepted in the yeshiva world, and that's good, I guess. On the other hand, uh, what about the minhagi of, um, of let's say, Hungarian Orthodox? Uh, not the Hasidic element, which have been uh, overtaken. So, but what are you going to do? That's uh, you know, uh, we, we can go back to medieval times and say the same thing. You know, as time goes on, certain min-hagi and certain practices are pushed aside. So, in terms of the German Orthodox, it's. Uh, once the World War Two came around and the German Orthodox were scattered, there was no way that their lifestyle was going to be able to continue uh, because they were minorities wherever they ended up. And a few places, like in Washington Heights, all they have is their nusach. There's nothing left there anymore of what German Orthodoxy meant, turning berachot, et etc. So uh, it's a lost world. But there are many lost worlds.
0: But yes, absolutely. I mean, when we talk talking about the, the, the Middle century,
1: Ages. Uh, well, I mean where does Italian do? It doesn't you, exist. You
0: have there. you have holdouts. You have holdouts of the Romaniot seeing a, diff- a little bit of a of a Renaissance in the Lower East Side, the Greek shore, the onion and uh, the, uh, the Romaniotes.
1: Yeah, there is there is no um they don't dovin
0: Romaniot, right the Lower They dovin the uh the uh, Rabbi uh, the Solar Pool Sitter, I heard.
1: Yeah.